This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror movies from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. I'm your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. What is on the examination table for this episode? I am incredibly excited because this is going to be the first ever Bodies of Horror listener request episode. An incredibly kind listener reached out and suggested an episode on 2009's Orphan, starring Isabel Furman and Vera Formiga. And, well, ask and you shall receive, dear listener. And thank you so, so much for your amazing email. It is impossible to put into words how much it really meant to me. Um, So, thank you. So, Orphan. This film has everything. Disability, obviously check. Killer kid, check with a caveat. Bombass treehouse, check. Supposed nine-year-olds making charcuterie boards, check. So there's a bit to talk about, so let's just get into it. We're seeing kids for the first time this weekend. I'm ready to adopt. Adopting an older child is not an easy decision. My name is Esther. Why aren't you down at the party? I've never really seen the point of it. I guess I'm different. There's nothing wrong with being different, you know? This is an extraordinary little girl. She's very mature for her age. You seem to have made quite a connection. Is this your house? It's your home, too. You're just as much part of this family as Danny and Max. It's a pleasure to meet you. This is our new student, and I'd like you all to make her feel very welcome today. Oh, look. Little Bo Peep texts me. She wants her outfit back. (laughs) Esther, what are you doing? Something's happening to cause Esther to feel this way. I think there's something wrong with Esther. We need to know what we're dealing with. Trouble does have a way of finding her. What kind of trouble? My name is Dr. Varava. I'm going from the CERN Institute. I don't understand. How can they have no record of her being there? There has to be some explanation. The orphanage has never heard of her. I don't think mommy likes me very much. Why was she at your hospital? What God? I love you, Daddy. I can't do it anymore. I have a surprise for you, mommy. Esther? Esther?
All right, let's get into this plot synopsis. Kate and John Coleman's marriage is strained after the stillbirth of their third child, Jessica, whose loss is particularly hard on Kate. She and John decide to adopt a nine-year-old Russian girl, Esther, from St. Mariana's Home for Girls, a local orphanage. While their five-year-old deaf daughter, Max, embraces Esther, their 12-year-old son, Daniel, is cold towards her. One night, John and Kate begin to make out, and Esther interrupts them. It gets real cute that they say that they were making out when they were just all out fucking in the kitchen, but do you? Wiki, do you? Kate becomes suspicious when Esther expresses far more knowledge of sex than expected of a child her age. Esther then exhibits hostile behavior in front of Max and Daniel, such as killing an injured pigeon and badly injuring a bullying classmate. Sister Abigail, the head of the orphanage, visits the household, warning Kate and John that the tragic events and accidents always seem to happen around Esther. To keep Sister Abigail from returning, Esther causes her to crash her car on the road, then kills her with a hammer. She forces Max to help her move the body, then hides the evidence in Daniel's treehouse. Daniel sees them at the treehouse, and she threatens to kill him if he tells Kate and John. As Kate becomes further convinced about Esther's unusual behavior, John believes she is being paranoid and tells and tells Esther to do something nice for Kate. Esther rips out the flowers from Jessica's grave and gives it to Kate as a bouquet. Kate is horrified and roughly grabs Esther's arm in distress and frustration, asserting that she did this on purpose. That night, Esther breaks her own arm and falsely blames Kate, causing further strife in the marriage. The next day, she releases the brake in the car, causing it to roll into oncoming traffic with Max inside. She also points out the wine she found in the kitchen, causing John and Kate's therapist to think that Kate is over the limit again, though she is not. They suggest she return to rehab, and John threatens to leave her and take Daniel, Esther, and Max if she refuses. Kate discovers that Esther came from an Estonian mental hospital, and the orphanage she claims she was from has no record from her. When Daniel learns about Sister Abigail's death from Max and searches the treehouse, Esther sets it on fire and attempts to kill him, but is sorted by Max. Daniel is seriously injured, and while in the hospital, Esther tries to smother him to death with a pillow but doctors arrive in time to revive him. Kate, whose suspicions are confirmed and angry at Esther's attempt to kill Daniel, slaps her and screams at her to stay away from Daniel and Max, but she is restrained and sedated. That night, Esther dresses provocatively and attempts to seduce John, who threatens to send Esther back to the orphanage after realizing Kate had been right about Esther's behavior. At the hospital, Kate is contacted by a doctor of the Sarn Institute and learns that Esther is actually a 33-year-old woman named Lena Klamer, born in Estonia. She has hypopituitarism, a rare hormonal disorder that stunted her physical growth and caused proportional dwarfism, and she has spent most of her life posing as a little girl. 
Lena is violent and has murdered at least seven people, including the last family that adopted her after failing to seduce her adopted father. The ribbons she wears around her wrists and neck have been hiding scars from trying to break out of straitjackets during her time at the Institute. Meanwhile, Lena removes her disguise and stabs John to death. Kate rushes home and Lena attempts to shoot her, wounding her arm. After Lena opens fire at Max, Kate breaks through the roof above and lands on top of her, knocking her out. Kate and Max flee as police arrive, but Lena attacks Kate near the frozen pond, hurling them onto the ice. Max tries to shoot Lena, but shatters the ice instead, sending Lena and Kate underwater. Kate climbs out, with Lena clinging to her leg. Lena once more tries to manipulate Kate, pleading for her life, while holding her knife to her back. But, Lena's, but to Lena's shock, Kate doesn't fall for her manipulation and angrily kicks Lena in the face, breaking her neck and killing her. Lena's body sinks into the pond as Kate and Max are met by police. Whew, that is a lot. And please know that if you haven't seen Orphan, that that plot synopsis is just the tip of the iceberg of the what the fuckness of this film. And yeah, it's it's a lot. So I let's dig in and let's start talking about the disability components of this film. And I really want to break this down to kind of three different sections because we have different disabilities represented in three different characters. So that's what we're going to do. I want to start out with Kate. One thing barely hit on in the plot synopsis, but is something that's really, I think, a, a huge theme or huge part of the film is Kate's alcoholism. Now, I know I've said repeatedly that I don't really dig into mental health, mental illness, and talking about disability, even though it is in that umbrella. But I think that I found the depiction equal parts interesting and aggravating in how it, I think, really does lay a groundwork of why addiction and other mental health issues do fall under that umbrella of disability. We're not given a ton of details here, but we are given enough to maybe connect some dots and get a sense of timeline type things. So we are led to believe that Kate's drinking became excessive or an issue after the loss of Jessica. It comes to a head when Max almost drowns. She's outside playing by a pond that is near their house. Kate has passed out drunk and isn't watching Max. Max falls into the pond. John happens to be home and is able to save Max, but this is the precipice for her to stop drinking and I, I guess start therapy. She does make a comment that she hasn't entered into any kind of formal AA or other treatment program. And I say that, however, there's also a mention of her being in jail uh, previously at some point. 
Um, and, and I have no idea what that actually is. It could just be something that's completely unrelated and happened before that, but I don't know. Um, so again, the details of that are kind of fuzzy, but at the start of the film, she has gone a year without drinking and seems to be doing all right in therapy. You know, she has had a huge loss and it, she's obviously still dealing with that. Whether you are treating or managing a physical illness or condition or a mental health issue, a key component to success is having that support network in place. This support network obviously needs to consist of family, friends that are advocating on behalf of your best interest and are there to support you in your decisions and choices in managing and treating whatever illness condition is being treated. My heart really breaks for Kate because even though she is successful in not drinking, she's had to do so much of this work on her own. Yes, she's going to therapy and, and does have the support of that therapist, but you know, it's also really important to have that support at home as well. And her husband is really disconnected and kind of disassociated from kind of what she's experiencing and going through. And both her husband and her mother-in-law seem really judgmental. There isn't a lot of her husband checking in with her, you know, talking about how she's doing, asking questions about how things are going, what she's experiencing, ways that he can be there for her. And it truly is just, it just really bums me out. And it's amazing to me that she's been able to kind of stay on a road of treatment and recovery as she has without that support in place. At kind of the start of the climax of the film, there's an intervention of sorts where the therapist and John uh, confront Kate with a bottle of wine that the girls had found. And she explains to them that she hasn't drank, that she did go and buy two bottles of wine. She did pour herself a glass and didn't drink it. She dumped it out, dumped it in the sink. And this goes back to, I think, the first therapy session that we see in the film where she is talking to the therapist about, you know, on her way home, wanting to stop by the liquor store and pick up a couple of bottles of wine to have just at the house in case they have guests over for dinner or something. And, you know, she talks about how that has been a thought in her mind, but she's, she's been able to not do that. But she points out that it's not necessarily coming from a desire to herself drink the wine. She just thinks it would be nice to have on hand. When Kate is telling this to the therapist, the therapist seems to really be listening and 
talking it through with Kate, helping her process. And this is flipped completely when we get to that, that scene that's essentially an intervention where, you know, they're not really checking in with Kate. There isn't a lot of questions being asked. There's not a lot of space for Kate to talk about how she's feeling. And when she does say, I'm not drinking, this is what's going on. She's completely shut down and she's given an ultimatum of you have a week to go away to a rehab facility um, or I'm leaving and taking the kids. And this is really where we do get more into specific treatment and therapy approaches related to addiction and alcoholism. So I don't really want to go down that road because again, that's not, that's not really my expertise, but I just kind of wanted to hit on a couple of these ideas to highlight some commonalities that I, that really stood out to me, I think on this watch, you know, that element of that strong support network and its importance. And I also think in terms of, of being that individual that's dealing with that illness, how you can feel devalued and stripped of your independence and autonomy based on your illness as well. I think we see that a little bit in this film with how particularly John treats Kate and so I just wanted to make sure that while I, I tend to step away from, from really digging into mental health issues, because that's really, again, not my expertise. And I highly recommend the psychoanalysis podcast for that, which is incredible. But um, I just wanted to highlight some of the commonalities because I think it is important to sometimes come back to uh, understanding why mental health and mental illness do fall under the disability umbrella. Now I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about Max. Max is the youngest child in the family and is deaf. We learned in the film that she was born almost completely deaf, but uses hearing aids. She uses hearing aids that allow her a little bit of hearing but the family communicates with ASL, although Max can also read lips. Now, one thing that is really important to note here is the fact that the actress who plays Max, Ariana Engineer, is in fact hard of hearing and has cochlear implants. So I was watching this with a friend and one of the things that they kept commenting on was how Max's reactions to things always seemed delayed by a few seconds. That in moments where something would happen and she would be really scared, that that initial reaction to the thing seemed slightly delayed. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that that actually seemed to make a lot of sense because as someone that would be deaf or hard of hearing, you're going to be processing the things around you differently because you're using different inputs. And I really appreciated that 
piece being added to the portrayal of deafness in the film. I think another thing I really appreciated is the fact that Max is treated like a normal kid in the film. Her family doesn't treat her in a very specific way because of her disability. Obviously her disability is part of her character and they are mindful and accommodating of that, but you know, it it doesn't translate into some kind of highly specialized, overprotective type of treatment of her. She's able to go play, she's able to do all the normal kid things that she can do. When Esther enters into the family, she and Max form a pretty quick and instant bond. I think from Max's perspective, she has a sister. You know, she's also dealing with the loss of Jessica. And so Esther is very much that kind of replacement sister in a way. Although, you know, she is the younger sister where for Jessica, she would have been the older. And I, I think that that's kind of what Max's approach is. I think that Lena sees Max's kindness and openness to their relationship as a weakness and something to exploit, that she can use this to get Max to kind of do whatever she wants, you know, even if she has to apply some some fear and manipulation into the game, which she obviously does. In addition to just being intimidating and threatening, Lena does manipulate and exploit Max's disability. She is nonverbal, so Lena knows that this isn't someone that is going to be able to scream for help in certain situations and is going to have a certain barrier in communicating with others if they don't know ASL. Towards the end of the film, when Lena is going to seduce John, they are putting Max to bed and Lena takes the hearing aids off of Max's nightstand so that there's no way that she can get up and overhear anything. So again, just kind of a way that she's, you know, very early in the film, she's kind of getting the information from Kate about uh, her disability and, you know, how she communicates. There isn't really much to say about the relationship between Max and Daniel. They seem to get along pretty well for, I think, siblings that are, uh, you know, pretty decently far apart in age and at such kind of different age groups. Max is fairly young and Daniel is a young adolescent. So, you know, they're just kind of in their own worlds a bit, but they seem to get along fine and have a pretty caring relationship. Now, one thing I will say about Daniel, just because Daniel is kind of one of the family members I'm not really going to be talking about all that much, is that he is the one that drops the R word a couple of times in the film. Now, the two times, I believe it's only two times in the film that it is mentioned is in reference to Esther. And one time is at school where he's with a group of his friends 
And the other time is at the dinner table. And I want to talk about this moment for just a second. So he's kind of getting into a heated back and forth. And he calls Esther the R word. And the parents scold him. But what I find really interesting is that they don't call out the actual term. I don't know. The, the whole scene just kind of made me feel really uncomfortable because, as I mentioned before, Max, you know, it's treated extremely well within the family. Um, she's obviously very loved, but, you know, you have a child that just is thrown around a hugely ableist and atrocious slur, and you're not calling him out on it you're upset and you tell him to stop, but you're not taking the opportunity to enforce with a child that is obviously old enough to understand why that word shouldn't be used. And I don't know, stuff like that just kind of gets uh, a little bit under my skin, especially when you want to make disability part of a character or part of a story, but you're not doing anything really on that end um, when you have an opportunity to do so. I think that's all I have to say about Max. So that means, y'all, it is time. It is time to get into all things Lena slash Esther. But before doing so, I do want to take a couple of minutes to talk about adoption and children with disabilities. The information that I'm going to be sharing here is from the 2007 National Survey of Adopted Parents and the 2007 Survey of Children's Health. So how this information was collected was that in the uh, survey for children, if a children was identified as being adopted, and adopted meaning that they did not live with either biological parent, then a subsequent survey would be given to the adopted parents. So I want to break down a few key metrics in these findings. The most important, I think, to start out with here is that slightly over one half of children adopted from foster care, around 54%, were identified as having a special health care needs. And this is compared to 19% uh, of children in the general population. Children with special health care needs include those who currently experience at least one out of the five consequences attributable to a medical, behavioral, or other health condition that has lasted or, ex or is expected to last for at least 12 months. So another important factor here is that we are not just looking at physical disabilities, but we're also factoring in behavioral and mental health challenges as well. Now, one of the additional little pieces of information here that I found interesting is that from the data collected from parents, that of those that 
we're caring for a child with a disability, 76% of those parents identify their children as being in good health. Now, this is probably recognizing individuals that have conditions that are easily manageable. So things like asthma, etc. So um, it's important to note that while that number of individuals with significant health challenges and disabilities is high, especially in comparison to the larger general population, that most of the parents were identifying their children as being in fairly good health. Now, of course, this is coming from the parents, right? Another couple interesting demographic tidbits. Most adopted children fell within the age range of five to nine years old, and just over half of the children surveyed were male at 57%. Switching back to some parent-reported data that I think is relevant to disability, 73% of parents that responded to the survey reported that they believed that their child had prenatal drug or alcohol exposure. And this was kind of lumped in with other um, aspects of neglect and abuse. But I think it's important to call that out specifically because fetal alcohol syndrome and exposure to drugs prenatally uh, can result in some physical challenges as well as emotional and behavioral challenges. Another question that was asked of parents responding to the survey was around the reason for adopting from foster care. And 24% of these parent respondents said that they wanted to adopt a child with special needs. Other reasonings uh, given for adopting from foster care was that 60% said it was cheaper, 28% said it was faster. So I think it's important to have that all in context. So in summary, there's a lot of children within the foster care and adoption system that have emotional, mental, and physical health challenges. And one of the reasons that has been cited in a lot of other research that I was pulling up from a lot of different sources, um, particularly when it relates to international adoption, although I don't necessarily want to focus specifically on that because Esther in the film is adopted within the States, is that parents will often put their children with significant health challenges up for adoption. Now, one of the issues that um, comes up in data from parents is that they often do not feel well prepared or well informed about the health challenges that their child has when adopting. And looking at some of the causes listed for disruptions of adoptions, this means that an adoption is stopped or terminated while it's in process, is that parents felt unprepared to meet the unique needs of a challenge with either a behavioral or mental health issue or a 
physical health issue. So I think it's important to kind of understand that in context. This obviously creates an issue where children with disabilities are not being adopted and being connected to these forever homes. They are kind of languishing in the foster care system. And what becomes an additional challenge within that is that once they turn 18 and exit the foster care system, they don't have the supports necessary in place to make that transition. That's why finding that supportive adoptive home is so crucial. And so now this gets us to Lena or Esther. Now, while Lena isn't a child now, she was a child overseas in the adoption and foster care system. And she is believed to be a child. So that's how I'm kind of bridging that gap because, you know, you may be thinking, well, she's not a child. So why are we talking about actual children with disabilities within the adoption and foster care systems? Well, that's why. Now, also, though, because she is not identified as an adult, she's not identified as someone with a disability. When John and Kate are meeting with Sister Abigail, they're not noting not just any physical issues that she may have, but also not really hitting on any emotional or behavioral health challenges that she had. She seems to be doing fairly well. She is incredibly smart, and while she seems a little withdrawn and and such, she, you know, they, they don't indicate that they have any issues with her, that the only time that they have had any kind of altercations um, or challenges with Esther, Lena, is when they would try to take off the ribbons from her wrists and neck. So, it's important to circle back to that because, you know, again, one of the things that we've identified in some of these reports is that parents feel that they have adopted a child without having all the information about their health, behavioral, mental, and physical health. And that is very much where John and Kate are. Now, they have the information that the adoption agency has, but they don't have the information about who this child really is and her medical background. Now, I only know very little about the adoption process, and I'm sure it varies depending on a number of different factors. But one of the things that I found really interesting is that after Lena has been with John and Kate and the family for a period of time, Sister Abigail calls Kate and says, oh, well, we need Esther's medical information and dental information. So my understanding is that one of the things that Kate was supposed to do fairly early in Lena being part of the family was you know, go get go get her physical, get her dental work caught up. So I'm interested in kind of what 
the agency, what the orphanage's kind of role in all of that is while she is there. Are they not taking the children to get regular checkups and get regular dental work? I think for the obvious reasons, I'm going to say that they probably weren't. That may be some basic care was provided, but nothing that would have been intensive enough that they would have had to do any kind of exam or work that would have exposed Lena. So I found that really interesting um, because I would assume that that would be something that the agency and orphanages would be on top of is making sure that, you know, they are doing some detailed workup, physical, and also, you know, from the mental health aspect as well. If children are uh, displaying challenging behaviors and showing signs of some mental health challenges, that they're also getting interventions. But it's, you know, it seems that there isn't any consistency across the board in how those things are handled, which is one of the issues within, I think, the whole system. But regardless, Sister Abigail calls and says, well, I need the medical information. And Kate mentions that she is having difficulty getting Esther, Lena, into the dentist. A trip to the dentist would certainly expose Lena because she wears false teeth to cover up her kind of rotted teeth. And you would also be able to see that that decay would be much more substantial than anything that could occur in someone's nine-year lifespan. And that she would have adult teeth. So the the dental thing I think is is really key. We do know that Lena goes to the doctor once when she breaks her arm, but this is probably an emergency urgent care type situation where it's, you know, my child is injured, emergency situation, and they treat it, and there's not any kind of additional workup unless there's some need for it to be necessary. All right, so let's talk hypopituitarism. And I'm getting this information from the Endocrine Society. Hypopituitarism, also called pituitary insufficiency, is a rare condition in which the pituitary gland doesn't make enough of certain hormones. Hypopituitarism can develop suddenly after surgery, injury, or bleeding, or very slowly over several months, or even over several years. It goes on further to say, hormones produced in the pituitary gland control the function of other glands in your body, including the thyroid gland, adrenal gland, ovaries, and testes. The body can't work properly when important glands such as your thyroid gland and adrenal gland don't get the hormones they need from your pituitary gland. Also, the pituitary gland makes growth hormone that helps children grow. It's not just the growth hormone that's being affected here as well. We are talking about the hormones that impact the development of what are called secondary sex characteristics as well. 
ovaries, testes, and that kind of development that you see happen alongside puberty. Now, I think I mentioned in the episode about Leprechaun and Warwick Davis that I'm four foot eight because I don't produce growth hormone. Um, it's part of my disability. And also part of my disability is the production of the hormones that would jumpstart that other piece of development. Basically, my physical development stalled prior to puberty. My ovaries never fully formed, so never had a period, can't have kids. So I found myself really looking at the character of Esther and her condition in a really unique way. It goes without saying that I'm removing the fact that she is a violent killer from this portion of the conversation because I that is beyond my understanding. But I do want to speak about the experience of being an adult woman that doesn't have what is perceived as a womanly body. And the dissonance and some of the challenges in that, especially as it's related to a disability. As someone that was assigned female at birth and identifies as female, I was constantly comparing my development to my female peers. They were getting their growth spurts. They were developing breasts. They were getting their periods. And I was not. And it really became a challenge, especially around puberty, when those changes are really starting to ramp up. You know, before I had just been the shortest kid in the class, but now I was becoming even more different from my peers on a physical uh, kind of way. And it just made me feel more isolated. And it gave kids more things to kind of point out and make fun of. So it really does impact your self-esteem, your self-view, um, and it impacts your relationship to your body. I think that because I was well educated and well aware about my disability, I was able to navigate it perhaps a little bit easier, but it was just a really difficult thing. And obviously this impacted so many different things as I got older. When you have a really challenging relationship with yourself and your body, it makes it really hard to form relationships with others. And this can be friendships, but also romantic relationships because, you know, I'm short and I mean, I don't think I look like a nine-year-old. No, um, I've got gray hair. I've got the wrinkles. Um, but you know, people have these preconceived notions about you based on how you look and act, um, accordingly sometimes. And so, you know, when I would be meeting people, um, going out on dates and stuff, they act a certain way based on how I looked. And that, again, it feeds into how you view yourself. And so 
if you look young and people treat you that way, that's going to have an impact on how you view yourself. And that can be really, really bad. And I think that's kind of what Lena is dealing with. Again, removing the the big stuff out of the picture here of, you know, the violence and the murder. Um, I think that because she does look so young, that that's kind of altered the way that she views herself. That's how people have treated her. And I do kind of chuckle at the end where she supposedly, like, they say they that she takes off her disguise. Um, and that apparently she was wearing a lot of makeup or was supposed to be wearing makeup in, uh, you know, kind of throughout the film to appear younger. And so after she's tried to seduce John, she, you know, wipes all of the makeup off. And I guess she's supposed to look, you know, much older. But Isabel Furman was 12 playing this role. So she doesn't look older. She looks like a child. Um, and just has, I think, some bags under her eyes, which she's been crying and all of that. So, you know, I, I just found that odd. Um, I think the most, again, the telling thing is that she takes out the false teeth, but even that, she has her mouth closed, so you don't really see. Now, we don't really get a full sense of what the impact of Lena's disability is on all aspects of her development. She, we see when she's taking off the dress that she does bind her chest. So there's that, but I think in one of the versions of the script, an early version of the script, there was a reference to her not being able to have children. And so I don't know if that is something that is still kind of embedded or implied with the script, but infertility is something that is obviously pretty common as well. And again, goes back to that identity piece of, I don't, you know, my body doesn't look or function in the way that I'm told my body should, and it having just this negative impact on self-image. Something that really stood out to me in this rewatch that I think had only been somewhat apparent to me or of note in previous times I've watched this movie is that they really do play up this othering of Esther from the minute that we meet her. We, she doesn't have an identified disability, but they keep talking about how she's so unique and different and she's bullied at school in a very similar way that a child with a disability can experience in school. I mean, like I mentioned with Danielle calling her the R word, there is kind of this coded way that they're presenting Esther as someone with a disability before the reveal happens. And I think that it's 
uh, it does kind of impact the way that it lands once that reveal does occur. I do think that one of the things that the structure of the reveal and how it plays into the end does really lean into the disabled villain trope in a lot of different ways. Um, especially if you're looking at the film, I think, with with a focus on that. Um, it definitely was something that stood out to me this time and wasn't something that I, I think I'd even really, uh, really thought about a lot with previous watches of the film. I, I didn't really connect the uh, disabled villain element to Lena, but it because I was so focused on that, this watch, it definitely stood out. Well, I think that might be a good place to wrap up. We've talked about a lot because this film is a lot. But I absolutely love it, and I think it's bananas and so much fun. And I think it also, you know, gave me an opportunity to talk about some other aspects of disability adoption and all of that that, you know, would be difficult to do elsewhere, but I think is an important thing to bring up. Thank you so much for listening and especially thank you to the listener that reached out with this recommendation as I mentioned at top uh, I love hearing from folks and I just I found your email really really touching and I appreciated the recommendation because this has been something that had been kind of percolating in my mind a bit but I didn't really know kind of what angle to take and so I just kind of said well why not just go all in when I got the email saying, hey, maybe cover this movie. So I'm really appreciative of that. Bodies of Horror is a proud member of the Anatomy of a Pod Squad fam. So if you are not subscribed to the Anatomy of a Scream feed at this point, what are you doing? I say it every episode. And if you take one bit of advice, from me one takeaway please let that be be it at least once i say it every time please make sure that you're following anatomy of the screen wherever you listen to uh your podcast because there's a ton of amazing content on the feed and you don't want to miss out if you want to reach out to me like the listener that suggested Orphan did, please do so. You can reach me at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. So say hello. Let me know what film that you think would be interesting to cover here. Let me know your thoughts. Just say hey. I'm, I love hearing from folks. So please feel free to reach out at any time. All right, friends. Until next time. The Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.